0: regalia has decked the electric billboards and diaper-wearing onlookers of the last several years. This purple is not meant to give the new year a royal welcome. It's meant, like a lot of things now, to sell you stuff. Purple is the primary color of the squishy national gym chain, Planet Fitness. The devilishly savvy corporate heads at Planet Fitness seize the phenomenon that happens every January. People exercise again. Well, so the corporate heads at Planet Fitness, they tantalize the masses with a $10 a month gym membership that they'll use one time, forget that they have, and then pay in perpetuity. Now, you may be somebody who bucks against every trend, but you might still succumb to the January fitness phenomenon. You know the importance of exercise. Don't let me uh, talk you out of doing that. So, come Monday, January 4th, 2021, because who starts a resolution on the first day of the year anyway? You uh, come that Monday, you may take a dip in the pool for water aerobics. Uh, You may stroll on the elliptical while you watch mindless daytime television, or you may climb aboard your new Peloton bicycle that you got for Christmas. The Peloton bicycle, if you don't know, is that two grand stationary bicycle that requires a $40 a month membership so that you can watch videos of a guy named Brody tell you to pedal faster. (laughs) Now, whether water aerobics, the elliptical, or a peloton, if you decide to return to exercise after a long break away from it, you're gonna discover problems that lie dormant in your body. Your muscles will ache because you haven't used them. Trust the guy who, once upon the return to the gym, I uh, did like, 20 sets of bicep curls and I couldn't move my arms the next day. <laughs> Friends, think of exposure to the Word of God like exercise. The higher the frequency, the better shape you'll be in. If there's no pain or tension, it's probably not effective. If you've taken a long break from it, it will be especially painful when you start back up. But just like you shouldn't let the pain of exercise keep you from coming back, you shouldn't let the exposure of your heart that comes with a serious encounter with the word keep you from coming back to it either. So this is what happens with God's people when Ezra returned to them. He reestablished the word of God among them that they had so long neglected and this return exposed the undetected and unaddressed sin of their hearts and the people had a choice they could either remain in the comfort of their selfish ways or they could take the uncomfortable road of repentance same decision faces each one of us not just at the moment of our conversion but honestly friends every single Because even we know, as followers of Jesus, that we still find sin alert and tempting. So in Ezra chapters 9 to 10, we'll see people take the road of repentance because they know this truth, the main point of these chapters. That to be close to God, you have to be far from sin. To be close to God, you have to be far from sin. These last two chapters will show us not just how Israel acted on this truth, but also how God works mercifully in this truth. We'll cover these chapters under three headings. First, the pain of sin. Uh, Just full disclosure, that's all of chapter 9. That will be the longest point. So buckle up for that. Uh, The second big heading is the cost of repentance. And then third is the guilty remnant. So it's my prayer this morning that God's holiness and kindness would lead us on the road of ongoing repentance from sin and ongoing faith in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So the first heading, The Pain of Sin, you can follow along with Ezra chapter 9. It's printed in your bulletin, or you can find it in your copy of God's Word. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of the, of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, "O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. And now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say to this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanness." Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you, are, you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's go ahead. So under this heading, the pain of sin, let's answer two questions. What was the problem? How did they pray? What was the problem and how did they pray? First question, what was the problem? Just build up speed here and cover where we've been. Ezra and the new group of Jewish exiles made it back to Jerusalem after the harrowing journey from Babylon. Took four months. It was over a thousand miles, and the journey required very reluctant exiles. It required foreign funds. It required God's good hand overseeing all of it. But all of the talk about Ezra's journey, we might forget why Ezra was sent back to Jerusalem in the first place—to reestablish the word of God in the land. I mean, you think of what Israel needed at the time. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. They needed economic development, military development, infrastructure development, and yet God knew they needed something more. God knew that their hearts had drifted away from him. And we get proof of that at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter nine. So just if we pay attention to the timestamps of these chapters, we learn if we fast forward from chapter 10, verse nine, that all the events of chapters nine and 10 took place just about five months after Ezra returned. So Ezra's back in Jerusalem, and five months later, these guys bring to him this problem. Do you remember Ezra's mission? Like, this guy was all about you know, studying the Word, uh, drawing close to the Lord, and making the Word known. That's what That was his MO. He did that for five months, and after five months of ministry from the Word, Sowing that seed, we see the first fruit. And the first fruit is that sin is exposed. And notice, it wasn't Ezra who brought that up either. It was somebody else. Friends, that's the beginning of true revival. Not when the pastor has to make everybody do something, but when people actually want to do something So we see in 9-1 that it was somebody else who spotted a problem, and these were likely not the newcomers to Israel. These were probably the incumbents. These were the guys who allowed to get it to the point that where it was. These were the guys who contributed to Israel becoming the swamp that it was. But God used his word like a fresh jar of horseradish clear up the plugged sinuses so that they could whiff the swamp around them. Friend, has the word landed on you like that? Not that it's stinky like horseradish, (laughs) but that it woke you up to your own stench. Does it still land on you like that? Can you read, for example, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? about not withholding forgiveness, about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, about not clenching onto bitterness, just to name a few. Can you read all of that and walk away saying, yeah, I think I'm okay. If the word has never left you feeling exposed, smelling your stench, then I would wager you have never really read it. Well, we still haven't gotten into specifics. What was the problem? Well, just to get to the point, it dealt with this widespread occurrence of Israelites who married foreigners. Now, we got some work to do here because we can have a tendency to impose our own past and our own context onto this situation that's happened thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away. This was not a ban on interracial marriage. It was not. It's, that's... Would be a very poor reading of the text. It would be a poor reading of scripture also. We should remember that even before this time, you know, Moses, he married Zipporah, a Midianite woman. We should remember Boaz, you know, that famous love story in the Bible. He married Ruth, a Moabite, a foreigner. Remember also previously in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, there was the first celebration of the Passover when they finally rebuilt the temple. And remember how it was described. The returned exiles weren't the only ones who celebrated that Passover. Also, according to Ezra 6, verse 21, anyone who joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So the problem wasn't that these these marriages threatened ethnic purity. They threatened spiritual purity. That was the problem. The issue wasn't that their wives were foreign. It was that their wives rejected the one true God for idols. And you know, maybe you're You're thinking, Steve, I don't know how much that helped, (laughs) that explanation, because that still sounds harsh. What's the big deal? The husband has one religion, the wife has another. Move on. Well, that logic, that underestimates the pull of sin. It underestimates the seriousness of God's word and God's holiness. Don't believe me, just consider the example of King Solomon. King Solomon was more spiritually mature than any person in this room. Was wiser than any person in this room. And what happened to King Solomon? 1 Kings chapter 11 says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, For when Solomon was old with his wives, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. This is the problem. The problem with intermarriage with idolaters was the same for Solomon as the returned exiles in Ezra. They threatened their spiritual purity. But the problem goes deeper than that. We can observe more closely in verse two, that this problem stood against God's plan of redemption.
1: Th- these marriages of
0: idolatrous women stood against God's plan of redemption. You look at verse two. It says, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. That Those, those words, holy race, means literally holy seed, Or offspring. This is a theme we can trace throughout the entire Bible. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. When God promised Eve after Adam and Eve sinned, I will raise up an offspring or a seed from Eve that will crush the serpent's head. It's carried in the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12. When God promises Abraham, I will give you an offspring or a seed through which I will bless all the nations of the earth. And it's picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, where he says Jesus is the fulfillment of this promised seed or offspring. And that all those who trust in Jesus, unclean and foreign that we are, are now part of this seed and offspring because of his work in our place. So when the Israelites mixed this holy seed, they disregarded God's gracious plan for the entire world. Friends, go back to the gym. Go back to the gym of God's Word and go there often. And when you go, don't just watch people work out, actually work out. Break a sweat, engage. So far, Ezra 9 has told us that we need to be in the Word with regularity and with honesty because there is sin in our lives that will otherwise go undetected and in turn compromise our closeness to the Lord and cause us to stand against his purposes. So pray along with David in Psalm 139, that God would search your heart to see if there is any hidden way in you and lead you again to the way everlasting. Heed the call of James chapter one, verse 27. Keep yourself unstained from the world Listen to Ephesians 5. Take no part in unfruitful deeds of darkness. For one time we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Walk like Jesus. Who, walk like who Jesus has made you to be. It says the fruit of light is all that is good and right and true. So when we join the return exiles in Ezra and look at the word, and then we look at Christ, It should make us want to leave behind sin and be close to him. Now, we've taken a disproportionate amount of time just to look at two verses, but these were really important verses to set the stage for these whole two chapters. In this opening section of the pain of sin, you're answering two questions. The first was, what was the problem? The problem was that it compromised our spiritual purity and it stood against God's plan. The second big question we asked how did they pray? How did they pray once they, once they knew this? Well, we'll give an overview of verses 3 to 15. How did they pray? Well, to rewrite the song, there was a whole lot of trembling going on. They trembled under God's word. You see that in verses 4 to 5. They trembled to the point, it says, where Ezra ripped his clothes and tore out his hair. Just in case anybody think this was just for show, we see that Ezra trembled the same way in private as he did in public. This wasn't just a performance. And say what you want about Ezra being melodramatic. You can't say that Ezra didn't take the word seriously. So friends, when we read God's word, we see God's call on our lives to avoid certain things and pursue others. And then we recognize that we have not lived that way Instead of trembling under God's word, I think we may often calmly nod in agreement. Give a deep, hmm, yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Just a a phony contemplation. We may, or even worse, we'll shrug it off and offer a loophole that exempts us from following God's word. So fellow followers of Jesus, you have permission not to pull out your hair after reading the Bible, but you do not have permission to treat the Bible casually. You don't have permission to do that. God's word should grip our hearts and direct our lives.
1: So how do they pray? They
0: trembled under God's word. And then we see Ezra took the helm in the prayer that runs from verse 6 to 15. And in this prayer, he trembled under sin. Says he was ashamed and blushed to lift his face to God. You read this prayer throughout it, he never sugarcoated sin. He never used soft pedal phrases like, you know, God, I'm just really struggling with this right now. Now, you look at the words he uses and the words he repeats. He uses words like guilt, iniquities, abominations, evil deeds. The book we read for men's group, uh, we covered it uh, yesterday. It asks at the beginning of one of the chapters. It asks us a really stirring question. It asks if if we could flash your thoughts from the past week, and we set up the projector here, and like everybody could see your thoughts from the past week. How would you react? A lot of us probably wouldn't come to church again, and at the very least. We have to say, we have just as much reason as Ezra to be ashamed to lift our face to God. We think Ezra's being melodramatic. Now, friends, you don't know yourself. Notice an important point about Ezra's struggling under sin. You may not catch this. Do you know, Ezra wasn't one of the people who married an idolatrous wife. He didn't do that and yet he did not elevate himself over these other people he included himself in the iniquity said it was our iniquity he may have abstained from that particular sin but he knew that didn't mean he was innocent friends the sin of the people around Ezra bothered him but do you know what else bothered Ezra his own sin friends be like that And consider also how Ezra reflects what Jesus would ultimately do. Ezra stood and identified with sinners as the high priest. Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, was numbered with transgressors. But he wasn't one of them. Jesus was not a transgressor. Jesus was not a sinner. But Jesus is the merciful and final high priest who died for sin and purified us from it, so we could have favor, not just for a moment, like Ezra talks about, but that we could have favor for an eternity. So how did they pray? They prayed, they trembled under God's word, they trembled under sin, and we see also Ezra trembled under God's mercy. He trembled under God's mercy. For Ezra, the tragedy of their sin wasn't that you know, good people like them did this. How could good people like them ever do such a thing? That wasn't the tragedy for Ezra. He knew the truth about what was in people. The tragedy for Ezra was how could they sin against such a good God? The contriteness and brokenness was not selfish. It was under God. How could they sin against such a good God who gave them favor they didn't deserve, who punished their sins less than they deserved, who brought them back home and who protected them from their enemies. Brothers and sisters, if Ezra had reason to tremble under God's mercy, how they could sin against such a good God, my goodness, do we not have even more reasons to tremble under our sin against a merciful God? We are believers in the cross of Jesus. How could we rebel against the one who was cursed How can we still choose our own way over the way of the one who is nailed to a tree for us? How can we still take sin lightly when sin is what sent the Son of God to the cross? Why would we ever go against the one who has this heart? We have every reason to tremble, just like Ezra. Well, by the end of the prayer, we see that Ezra casts himself entirely on God's mercy. Entirely on God's mercy. You look at verse 10, he's at a loss for words. Just ask God, what do we even say? He laid no claims on God. He, he understood God did not owe them mercy. He didn't even attempt to convince God and say, listen, God, I know we screwed up, but we'll make it up to you. I promise we've done some good in our past too and and I promise as going forward, we will do more good than outweighs our bad. No such language in this prayer. Instead, Ezra prayed this in verses 14 to 15. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. We'll keep the gym metaphor alive. Bear with me. Prayer seems like one of those machines at the gym (coughs) that you have no idea how to use it. You have no idea what it's for. And then you try to use it, you try to hop on it and you kind of make a fool of yourself and give up quickly, and then you hope that nobody saw you. Think of Ezra as someone who used that machine rightly. And now, imitate him. Pray like Ezra prayed. Get to the same point where Ezra got. Brothers, sisters, or just friends here, have, have you come to this point Where you've understood not just the guilt over what you've done against God, but also to the point where you've left behind any notion that you earned stuff from him. Where you've left behind any notion that you could earn yourself back to him. See, friends, you can't just admit your sin. You have to admit your so-called righteousness. You have to admit what you hold up about yourself before God to try to convince him that your sin isn't all that bad. When we get to that point, truly, that is when we cast ourselves entirely upon the mercy of God. God listens to this one. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the passage continues, why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here is the process so far. The word of God exposed the problem of sin. The people were broken over it. They confessed it and they looked to God. And now they sought to do the next step. They sought to turn from it. And when we've developed a simple pattern in our lives, I'm sure you know as well as I do, it's tough to break. And so here we get the second heading for our second section, The Cost of Repentance, chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. Could follow along as I read again. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the lands. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. "'Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it.' Then Ezra arose and made, and made the leading priests and the Levites and all the Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashim, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles.' And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the return exiles, that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by the order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, "'trembling because of this matter "'and because of the heavy rain. "'And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, "'You have broken faith and married foreign women, "'and so increase the guilt of Israel. "'Now then make confession to the Lord, "'the God of your fathers, and do his will. "'Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land "'and from the foreign wives.' "'Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, "'It is so. "'We must do as you said. "'But the people are many. "'As it is a time of heavy rain, "'we cannot stand in the open.' Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehizah, the son of Tithka, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabitai, the Levite, Levite supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. God had given so much fruit to Ezra's ministry of the word That not only in the first place did somebody besides him, that's the officials, bring the problem up to Ezra. Now here, someone else besides Ezra leads the charge to repentance. This guy named Shekinah.
1: They understood how they had
0: sinned against God and now they resolved, according to verse 3, to put away their wives and children. That's hard to read. We shouldn't brush past that. They resolved to put away their wives and children. Now we should remember that these spouses had the chance to leave behind the worship of other gods and worship the one true God. We should remember also the greater context of this time by looking at other scriptures, like the book of Malachi, who would have prophesied during the time of Ezra. According to Malachi chapter 2, a lot of people in Israel left behind their wives to marry these foreign, idolatrous women. But still, we just wonder what happens to these women and children. We're not told. It's likely that they return to where they were from. We wonder also what this means for couples who are, as the word calls it, unequally yoked. You may recall 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that Christians who are married to non-Christians should do what they can to stay married. Um, There's a lot more we could say about this, but just the short of it is, Ezra and 1 Corinthians 7 address different scenarios.
1: 1 Corinthians 7
0: speaks to those who are already married and then become Christians. Ezra speaks to people who should have known better in the first place. Now, when we think of the difficulty of putting away these wives and children, it should remind us of the pain of sin and the cost of repentance. Honestly, it made me think of Esau. There are lots of examples we could turn to. You might remember Esau, you know, Jacob Jacob and Esau, the twins. Esau is this big, burly guy, maybe not very smart. And Jacob's, you know, the crafty guy. Esau's the elder. He had the inheritance. And what was Esau infamous for doing? Well, He sold his birthright to his brother, basically for a bowl of chili. I don't care if that was a national award-winning winning chili, and it's the best bowl you've ever had. That was not a good exchange. Just think of that as sin all the time. That sin is never, ever, ever, ever worth it that sin will always lead to more pain than pleasure. But really the main takeaway to highlight from this section, chapter 10, is the insight it offers into true and meaningful repentance. Notice first then in verse 2, that true and meaningful repentance began with hope in God despite their sin. It began with hope in God despite their sin. Listen, we will be defeated even before we get started on repentance. If we think that God can't change us and can't pull us out of our sin, we'll be defeated even before we start. Romans chapter 6 tells us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Live like that's true because of what Jesus has done for you. Now their repentance continued, this true and meaningful repentance continued with no excuses, no half measures, and no compromise. Shechaniah he called for a complete separation. We might imagine what Shechaniah could have said to Ezra. All of them could have went up to Ezra and said, Ezra, listen, we know we got this problem, but you know, you're religious and all, and us real people, Listen, we have needs. The allure of these women were just too much for us to handle, and and we can't. They could have went up to Ezra and said, Ezra, you know, we know there's a a problem here. There's some damage that's been done, but we can't help with the damage that's already been done. I'll tell you, here's what we'll do, okay? We'll make you a deal. We'll promise not to do it again. We'll promise not to take any more foreign idolatrous wives. Is that okay? These would be half-hearted. This is not what God's word has for his people. They put away all the idolatry among them. Full and uncompromising repentance. It's going to look harsh. It's going to look difficult. And friends, it probably will be. Full and uncompromising repentance is, may look harsh it may be difficult, which, it, which is why it takes the power of the Holy Spirit and why it takes the victory of the cross. Full and uncompromising repentance may look harsh it may be difficult, but anything less leaves the door cracked open for sin. We respond to sin, our own sin, in only one of two ways. We either harbor it, or we repent from it. Those are the only two options. But we convince ourselves all the time that there's a third option, don't we? We believe that there is. That's the option of acknowledging the sin. Maybe feeling guilty and convicted. Maybe even taking some measures to leave it behind, but still leaving the door open just a little bit. That is not repentance. That is harboring sin, holding on to it. Listen, let's get real. You may even listen to the word today. You might be tracking with everything I'm saying right now, tracking with the scriptures. You may agree with it. You may connect connect with it. You may feel good after you leave here, and then you go home and you return to your normal habits and your normal routines, to your regularly scheduled programming. Ezra 10 shows us that there is no third way to respond to sin. We can put it like John Owen famously put it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The story continued with all the people gathered in Jerusalem outside the temple in a rainstorm. And they're gathered to deal with their sin and leave it behind. But the sin was so rampant that even thorough steps of repentance took three months according to chapter 10, verse 17. And so the whole book of Ezra, it ends with a list of this guilty remnant. You just take a glance at this list, verses 18 to 44. On this list, there are people of high religious ancestry. On this list, there are people who are in leadership roles, priests neither of those groups were exempt from the potential of sin
1: i don't care how godly your
0: family is i don't care that your grandma went to church and brought you growing up i don't care how high your position is that work that i'm a pastor each one of us has a huge capacity for sin that we more often than not underestimate so the return exiles dealt with the opposition uh, way back earlier in the book, they, they dealt with opposition from the people who inhabited the land when they got back. You know, they, they rallied against them and saying, like, don't build this. And they tried to stop the re- the reconstruction of the temple. But now this final list, as the book closes, this final list of this guilty remnant should remind us that our greatest threat, our greatest opposition, does not come from outside of us. It comes from within us. Better to die from outward opposition while remaining faithful than to live and become a hypocrite and a traitor. While Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books were originally one. But even so, the ending of Ezra feels off. Like it's not the Pulitzer Prize winning ending that we have longed and hoped. And I think that's kind of the point.
1: This ending should remind
0: us again that the unfaithful Israelites still waited for the faithful Messiah. We read about the Israelites' oath to put away their idolatrous wives and pursue the Lord. If we're really in tune to how God's people have lived up to that point and read that oath, we should kind of wince a little bit. Man, they've said really similar stuff before and just went back on it. If they would be right with God, fully, finally, for good, God himself would have to live the life that they were called to live, but refused to and couldn't. That's exactly what the son did. The father showed his love to unfaithful people, and that while we were sinners, Christ lived the life we should have lived, and died the death that we deserved. And those again this guilty remnant should point us to the innocent and perfect Savior so as those who have Ezra chapters 9 and 10 and those who have the one to whom Ezra chapters 9 and 10 point we can ask in closing what kind of community should this make us to be what kind of community of people it should make us a community that aligns our lives and our hearts to the word of God it should make us a community that wants to be so close to God that we confess our sin. It wants to be so close to the Lord that we are broken over our sin against him. That a community that humbles ourselves before God, that makes no claim to his mercy, and yet a community that joyfully and thankfully receives his mercy and forgiveness through Christ. A community that lets that mercy and forgiveness fuel our ongoing, uncompromising repentance. A community that remembers that our faithlessness did not have the last word on our lives. And it doesn't have to have the last word for anyone's life. Because we are a community that clings not to ourselves, but to Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the simple truth stated in your word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We should not leave Ezra 9 and 10 elevating ourselves above the people who delved into sin. We are just like them. We need grace and mercy just like them. And we thank you, Lord, that out of your mercy you give favor. Favor that that not even these exiles knew yet They still looked forward to it. Favor in the form of your son, the great and merciful high priest who identified with sinners, even though he wasn't one, and died for them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We want to leave behind our sin that clings to us so closely. And we want, by the power of your spirit, to repent from it and be near you. Please help us do that. In your name we pray.